the table with me. I'm Brendan. Um, welcome to uh, our, incidentally, Father's Day service. It's not a father-themed topic more than, you know, the fact that we have a father God that we get to share in. But uh, happy Father's Day to those fathers among us. And preemptively to those who will be fathers one day. Good luck, guys. Um, I'm going to pray, and uh, then we're going to get into the passage. Father God, we thank you that you brought us together, um, and we pray for your gospel that you've given us, your scriptures that you've given to us here. So we pray that you open them up to our hearts and open up our hearts to what you have to say in them. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. We okay? Something going on? Talk amongst yourselves. Somewhere else? <laughs> Let's check in the pocket. <laughs> I'll just be very still. Cool. <clears throat> so, we just finished the book of 1 John. Let's see the first letter of John. Going on to 2 uh, John here, not to be confused with John 2. Now, if I periodically say John 2, what I probably mean is 2 John. So I hope that doesn't get too muddled up. So, I want you to consider these three words with me that I recall being plastered on every wall near every pool area or paved play area when I was younger. Walk, don't run. Do those words make you want to walk or run? Now, we are defiant creatures by our nature, and if you don't agree, you've only proved my point There's a natural cycle in our lifetime where we begin powerless and young and largely are forced to conform to the rules set by us or for us by other people. And then we gain some, uh, some maturity and at a certain age we begin pushing back on any and all possible authority around us. And then at another age, we have that power and responsibility over others who are too young and weak to make those decisions for themselves. We wonder why they don't do what they're told. Now that's a broad sweep and it is broadly true, but if you zoom in far enough, you'll find we're actually defiant from day one the whole way through. You know the first thing that you did in your life? Prior to your birth, in the womb, you kicked your mum. <laughs> sure it was cramped and awkward, but I'm sure it wasn't a lot of fun for her either. You kicked your own mum. You disgust me. And that instinct carries on through life. Don't put that on your mouth. No TV or phone for a week. You have to sleep sometime. 80 kilometers per hour unless otherwise signed. Matter of opinion, really. I don't recommend that as an example. But those instincts actually serve us well when we first approach Christ, because here is Jesus, the radical teacher, offering us a radical teaching, a life lived in defiance of the world and the flesh and the devil. Yeah, radical rebels. Sailing our pirate ship of gospel truth through the stormy seas of history. But, like a young rebel who grew up sticking it to the man and then to his horror realizes he has become the man and now is the one people are sticking it to, Believers transition from being cultural rebels to adopting a new culture. 
with new rules and expectations, and that is often the point where stuff gets hard. Most people come into a church family for the first time because they are trying to discover the truth. And if they've come for the truth part of discovering truth, then they'll find it and they'll stay. If they've come for the discovery part of discovering truth, it'll only last as long as it does for that restless itch of defiance to begin tingling again. In short, Jesus asks you to give up your life that you were living before, change your ways, and live according to new precepts that he's given. And to do that exactly once, with only minor course corrections from then on in. And that was pretty much the content of the previous book we studied as well, First John, the main thrust of which is, truth is still true. Refer to the Gospel of John for greater details. And now we arrive at Second John, the main thrust of which is, love is still love, truth is still true, antichrists are still antichrist. Refer to First John and the Gospel of John for further details. It's a short letter of distilled wisdom. Walk, don't run. Walk in truth, walk in love, don't run after deceivers. And we'll see each of those things as we step through the passage. Now this letter starts and ends like we expect ancient epistles to start and end. It begins with the author, the elder, a wise elder in or belonging to these churches that were founded by the Apostle John. And it begins that, that, um, the name of the author, or at least his title, Elder, and then moves on to the recipient's name, and begins with blessings, and ends with a wish to speak face to face, greetings passed on from friends at their current location, etc., etc. Now, the chosen lady of God mentioned at the start is probably not an actual chosen lady, but as a personification of that church. It is that church as a whole, this bride of Christ image of the church. That church is the lady and her children are the members of that church. And likewise, in the last verse, the sister and her children are another church, the one from which the elder is writing. They are sister churches. So we can expect the author to bounce around a little between speaking in the singular and plural in his writing. Speaking to you, dear lady, or you, dear Christians. Now, if we get at our highlighter at this point, and we begin to focus on the first six verses looking for important repetitions, which we know mean important things, we won't be disappointed. Truth, 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 truth. Love, 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 love. Truth and love, five times in those opening verses. And particularly we're told in verse four, it has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And then in verse six, as you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Walk in truth, walk in love. There's a given image here of the great mass of the church, of the body of believers walking, marching, traveling towards their final destination to the drumbeat and pace of these two things, truth and love. And we'll get to verse 9 and what happens to those who run ahead of those walking in a bit. But let's look a little closer at these verses, 1 and 2 particularly, with attention to the word truth. To the lady chosen by God and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. He loves them in the truth, along with everyone else who knows the truth, and they love because of the truth. 
And that truth is what is real, it is what is actually really there and not just a feeling or notion or something that can change from person to person. The truth here is both the thing that draws the love out and the thing that causes the other to love in the first place. It's both sides of the love. And it's a truth that abides in them forever, an unchanging truth. That truth, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died his death on the cross to erase our sins and empower us to abide, or rather to be abided in by the Holy Spirit. To recognize those fellow believers by that Spirit and for that Spirit to prompt us and create love in us. The truth, not just what we believe is true, but the actual factual nature of what we believe, is the thing that binds us together as a church. It's the copper wire through which love is the wonderful voltage. We love those things we are connected to. That's how we are able to love. We love our family because we're connected by blood and by experience of life. We love our friends because we share a sense of humor and interests and memories. And we love our church family because we are connected by that true gospel of Jesus Christ. Incidentally, this is a particularly liberating truth to internalize. If you've been coming to this church for some time, you may have met everyone in here once or so, and you may be familiar that occasionally we address the people sitting on the left of the church or the people sitting on the right of the church. Something might be said like, you guys who always sit on this side and you guys always sit on this side, isn't it terrible how we're divided into these cliques and we never really turn to this harmonious soup of loving believers? It's okay. It's okay to have people you get along with better than others. That is the way love works. It works that we love those we are connected to more. And the more we are connected to them, the more we love them. If you meet someone at church who also watches Daredevil and likes complaining about American politics, then you have the makings of a good friend connection there. If you meet someone at church who shares none of your interests and experiences, either because of an enormous age gap or cultural difference or anything else, you'll probably not have a friend connection there. And you can't force that. You cannot make it happen. You can be kind and polite to one another and good to one another, but there's nothing there to bond over as friends. But the power of the gospel is that it is a truth once grasped and a better connective fiber for love than friendship or blood. A God-given covenant through which love runs like lightning from believer to believer. So the amazing fact remains that if you sit on this side of the church, and even if you've never met anyone on this side of the church, you can still be assured that the people on this side of the church would sweat pints of blood to come to your aid if you needed it. Not because you like the same movies or ski Japan together, but because you are bound by the common truth that you have, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a Mandarin and Cantonese congregation at this church filled with plenty of folks who do not like the music I like, who do not give a hoot about Batman or geopolitical blogs, and whom I do not share a drop of blood or a word of spoken language with. But I know that if I was hungry, they would feed me. And if I was naked, they would clothe me. And if I was in prison, they would visit me. 
Do we understand how insane that sounds to the outside world? For people who would say that religion should be a private thing, it is the least private thing. It is the thing that connects you and I to more people in this world than we could ever possibly get to know, let alone become friends with. So this dynamic connection then, this love is important to understand. It is the reason that we make the friends we do. It's the reason that Christians are so frantic right now about the changing of the definition of marriage, incidentally. And horrified to find that marriage changed long before the gay marriage thing ever became an issue. If marriage is a covenant, a significant thing, an actual connection between a man and a woman, then it has a substantial life and connection of its own. And that means if the partners develop diverging interests in a couple of years, and the experiences they share are soured by difficulties and fights, and then the marriage itself is enough connection for the love to sustain and to continue, even if the friendship part of it freezes solid for a time. And when further maturity and experience yield more to connect to and that ice thaws, then it's the marriage itself that sustained it over that period of time. But if marriage is just a piece of paper, just words you write down on a piece of paper to recognize that two friends are so friendly they want to be as friendly as humanly possible, when that winter comes and the friendship between the lovers ices up, there is nothing left for that love to pass through. And the whole thing can just shatter and dry up completely. This is the reason the Christian divorce is such a complicated issue, because Christian couples are supposed to be bound by both their covenant to each other and their covenant to God. And if one genuinely stops loving the other, we have to ask, are they really hooked into the grid? And things become very complex and messy indeed. But for now, we'll concern ourselves with the connection between friends and people we know at church. Verses 3 and on. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and in love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. If this sounds familiar to you, then you've been paying attention for a few weeks. Good work. Verse 5 here, I am not writing to you a new command, is almost word for word what came up in 1 John 1.17. Verse 6, and this is love that we walk in obedience, is almost word for word 1 John 5.3. Do we get, perhaps, the sense this is an issue John finds critical? Something worth repeating. And the principal at my college, Gary Miller, tells a story that after a sermon he delivered, he was confronted by a congregant who told him that she enjoyed his preaching a lot, but it very much seemed like he was telling the same message over and over. Good, he said. It's all from the same source material. A more problematic scenario would be one where on one week there is a sermon and on another week a wholly different sermon with entirely different conclusions suggesting a different gospel behind it. But the message of the gospel is always the same because it is true. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, came from the divine places to dwell among mankind in flesh. 
He died and rose so to pay the penalty for our sins, and thus we can die and rise and dwell in those divine places from which he came. He came down to die so that we could die and go up. With this comes an infusion of the Holy Spirit. And so like God, we have the Holy Spirit in us. And so we have that connection with God, which enables us to be able to love God and then develop obedience and friendship and experience with Him and to grow ever more connected and ever more loving with God. With this spiritual scintillation comes what I have called here the grid, a connection to other believers that is beginning with but not limited to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in each of us. And that is the basis for our loving one another. That's why Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this they will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. We are commanded to love one another, not as an exclusion to those outside the faith, but as a celebration of what is made possible by that given spirit. That is what it means to walk in love, to execute what is made possible by walking in truth. Because truth is true regardless of blood or friendship or culture. And we walk in a truth that unites us. And we walk in love made possible by that unity. Now keeping that in mind, we can see that the elders' concern when we hit verses 7 through 11 makes a lot of sense. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Incidentally, almost word for word, 1 John 2.18. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in his teaching has both the Father and the Son. So if we are walking in love and in truth... When we obey God and love one another, then we are doing well. But if we run ahead, we fail to continue in Christ's teaching. Now, this is not a warning about abandoning the faith in hard times or something along those lines. That teaching is elsewhere in the scriptures. Trials will come, soldier on, persevere in the faith. But this is a teaching about the virtue of intolerance, which is a strange collection of words to hear in this day. But it's about the virtue of intolerance, and specifically here, the intolerance of the weak source creed that suggests Jesus did not really come in the flesh. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Now we're looking here at a scenario where these discreet house churches of this day would receive itinerant preachers and people passing through missionaries and people God had either raised up by having them as personal witnesses to the events of Jesus in Judea or else blessed converts with a gift for teaching. But people passing through looking to teach. But lacking a church to ordain ministers or for that matter a Baptist union to certify them, it was no mean feat to weed out those who might not be genuine. In this case, the offenders are denying Jesus' humanity. Now, this is a heresy that the church would struggle on and off with for hundreds of years and never quite forget. The line goes something like this. Humans and the material world are all corrupt and evil and impure with disease and death. 
and therefore Christ could never really come in the flesh because he's too good for flesh, and that would make him unclean somehow. So he was some kind of spirit ghost who walked among people and never really became one of them. And then you end up with all kinds of elaborate ideas to explain who or what was actually being nailed to the cross while we dummies thought it was Jesus. The great issue with this is that Jesus' incarnation, his becoming a human, is essential to the act of salvation. Christ's whole bit was about being the only one who could touch unclean things and make them clean. He touches the leper and the leper is healed. He touches the woman who has been bleeding for years and she ceases to bleed. Jesus is killed and goes down into the grave and then comes the promise that even death has become a cleaning agent, ceasing to be a doorway into darkness and potentially a gateway into heaven. If Jesus did not really become human, then we cannot really be anything like him while we are human, which means we cannot be connected to him as humans indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and the whole thing starts coming apart at the seams. Nowadays, we're more likely to actually encounter the opposite heresy, the idea that Jesus wasn't really divine and was just a gifted teacher like Buddha or L. Ron Hubbard or whoever you like. The problem there is that Jesus, if not fully divine, is subject to the same weaknesses that we are, which means that he would be vulnerable to sin. He could not really have cured lepers or risen from the dead and certainly couldn't save us from our sins in a supernatural capacity. And then that whole thing starts coming apart from the other end. The point of this is that knowing who Jesus really is and responding to that real truth, that is, walking in truth, is essential to salvation. Near enough is not good enough but fortunately, we have a God who consistently goes out of his way over and over again to communicate the saving grace of his Son to the world. But if someone is not walking in truth, then they do not have that saving truth and they do not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Which means they do not have that connecting copper cable through which we might experience that love we are commanded to have one, with one another. They may come into the church and they may be very charming and make a great deal of friends and connect on a very human level with a great number of people on a charismatic basis. But when that connection freezes up, like a friendship growing apart or lovers falling out of love, there will be nothing to maintain that love. No means by which they might then continue to walk together in love. And they will break away with all the pain and violence of a bone being healed crooked and then snapped to be set back in place. That is the ugly scenario which cannot unsave the saved or thwart our God, but certainly can kill churches if the miscarriage of duty is severe enough. It is for this reason that the elder in the scriptures here calls on the church to be intolerant of false preachers. Now, for clarification particularly, regarding verses 10 and 11 about not welcoming them into your house, does this mean that we throw out the poor Japanese exchange student because he cares very little for Christ, but instead concerns himself with appeasing the fickle kami of Shintoism? No. Not unless he was just hired on as your senior pastor. We are 
still enjoined by Jesus to be kind and hospitable, particularly even to the sojourner and the alien among us, people who may know nothing about our Christ. But as regards appointments to authority within the church, to teaching positions, near enough is not good enough. They must come with the teachings of Christ, and they must not be anti-Christ. Are they walking in the truth? Do they teach who Jesus really is? Then surely they must love their brothers and sisters in Christ. Are they walking in love as commanded? Then surely they must know who Jesus really is. And if not, then they can't possibly know who Jesus is. Because to know it is to be part of that connection, to be hooked into the grid, and to inevitably be part of that circuit of divine affection and devotion, that love of one another. So, walk. We were rebels from the world, but now we are citizens of a new kingdom. We walk in truth, which empowers us to walk in love. And since that truth will ever be true, we mustn't abandon it by running after deceivers, though they may appeal to our rebel roots. There's a super-individualized rebellion that says, I don't think we should try and convert anyone. I think that I don't like organized religion. That rebel has never met a God worth sharing. I came to faith in an era that said, it didn't matter whether or not you went to church, just that you had a close personal faith with Jesus Christ. But if you have a close personal faith with Jesus Christ, it very quickly becomes apparent that he wants you to have a close personal communal faith with him. So if you like sitting on the left side of the church, sit on the left. If you like sitting on the right, sit on the right. It's okay. After the service, may the two halves briefly meet and talk to one another as long as they can stand before returning to their own halves as it once was, so it ever shall be. It's fine, really. But do take a moment to bask in what you do share with everyone in this room and with every Bible-believing church across the face of the earth and back through the vanishing lights of history. You are bonded by the Holy Spirit. And that bond makes you capable of loving one another, not in some abstract sense of thinking nice thoughts, but genuinely loving and being willing to sacrifice for them. Even if talking to them is like pulling teeth. So thank God who gave us a truth we can walk in so that we can walk in love. And may he protect us from all the petty rebellions that might tempt us to run away from this incredible blessing. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for what you've done. For the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ which saves us and moves us and brings us together. And let that truth and the love we share because of it set the pace for our walk with you. And guard us from false teaching and division that might fracture what you have forged. Our devotion and our community of believers rest together in your hands. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ.